Okay. Well, if you would, you can join me in opening up to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament, right after Numbers or Leviticus and Numbers. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under a seat in front of you. Deuteronomy, the text we're looking at, is going to be on page 162. We'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and 21. We're usually at this point moving through the Gospel of Matthew together, but this morning we're going to be looking at two texts, uh, two texts from, or text from the book of Deuteronomy, and then briefly a text later in the Gospel of Matthew, later than where we usually are. So I'll be reading beginning in Deuteronomy 19. And let's, let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we are reminded already that this is a day where many in our nation remember the sanctity of human life, and in remembering that, we remember who you are. You're a God who creates. You're a God who made us. You have made men and women in your image, and therefore, Every human being who has ever existed from conception onward is precious and valuable, valuable to you. And we live in a day where we do not value human life like you value human life. And none of us have valued it as highly as you have and as rightfully as you have. And so we pray this morning that as we consider your word speaks to the topic of the sanctity of life and abortion, that you would give great comfort to those who need comfort, that you would speak great peace to those who have troubled hearts. We pray that you would speak courage into many who need courage to act. We pray that you would convict where we need conviction. And we pray that as a result of this time, you might do far beyond anything we could ask or think uh, to care for little ones today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 19. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, the rest of what we'll read here has to do with these three cities. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past... As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, well, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past." 
Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he sworn to your father and gives you all the land that he promised to give your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Deuteronomy 21. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer, a cow, that has never worked and is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the son of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck has been broken in the valley, and they shall testify... Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt might be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. You can stay in Deuteronomy in Matthew 27. We learn of the betrayal of, you don't need to turn there, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And Judas changes his mind when he's betrayed him. And he says, my hands have betrayed innocent blood. Same phrase that was repeated here. So my plan this morning is to connect those two texts. The text we just read in Deuteronomy and the statement in the Gospel of Matthew of Jesus' innocent blood. The text in Deuteronomy contains the laws of establishing the cities of refuge in Israel. The text in Matthew is the story of Jesus' betrayal, which leads to his death. And the link between the two texts is that phrase, innocent blood. The text we just read in Deuteronomy repeats it four times, about 20 or so percent of the occurrences in the Old Testament where that phrase is used, innocent blood. And then in Matthew, on Judas' lips, Referring to Jesus, it's the only place where the phrase innocent blood is used in the New Testament. And so these two texts draw our attention to two different things. In Deuteronomy, it's about the need to prevent the shedding of innocent blood. And in Matthew, it describes the shedding of innocent blood, the shedding of the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I hope in our time together to make clear by relating these two texts together. My aim is to make a connection clear to us, namely, 
the connection between abortion and the cross, the connection between the death of little ones and the death of Jesus Christ. And here's how they come together. Abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. It's a massive problem in itself, and it creates another massive problem, and that is the guilt of shedding innocent blood. And not just guilty feelings, but objective guilt before God. But Jesus' crucifixion is also the shedding of innocent blood, and it provides the only answer to that problem. There is only one thing in the entire world that can speak peace to those who have shed innocent blood, and it is the shedding of innocent blood. The cross is the shedding of innocent blood for those who have participated in or done nothing to prevent the shedding of innocent blood. And there are hundreds of millions of people in our world who need to hear that. Now, I think it might be helpful to make clear up front a reason why I'm not talking about this today. This isn't intended to be a political message. I'm not going to be referencing political parties today. This is about hearing God's word speak to a central issue of our time, regardless of whether that issue is taken up in the political discourse of our time. In the past when I've spoken on this, I've tried to be a little bit more comprehensive. Uh, This is a multi-layered and complex issue affecting many of us in different ways, calling us to different things. This morning, I'm not going to be as comprehensive as I've been in other times, so I wanted to let you know that up front. So here's my hope today. My hope this morning is that this will give great comfort to those who are aware of guilt, that this will give strengthened endurance to those of you who may feel weary in your good work for standing for life. My hope is that this will give clarity to those who have confusion about what the Bible says about this issue and what resolve we might need to have. And my hope is that this will give conviction and courage to all of us because we need to be stirred to God-dependent action in our time. So let's first then consider this section of Deuteronomy together. Deuteronomy contains Moses' speeches to the people of Israel and the previous generation of Israelites before this speech was given had been rescued from Egypt. They had been on their way to the promised land and they've come to Mount Sinai and they heard God's law given. But they broke God's law, they disobeyed God and they were left to stay in the wilderness. They could not enter the land. And now a next generation has risen up and they're going to enter the land now. And Moses is speaking to them as they stand on the edge of the land about to enter in. He's going to remind them of God's laws for their life in the land. And one of the main things that Deuteronomy 19 to 21, this section that we read from, one of the main things that this focuses on is the value of human life in various ways. It's a central theme here. And how to protect it. They're entering the land. They need to know life is valuable. Here's how you can protect it. So 
In particular, this is about establishing justice in the land. Israel's going to enter in, and God wants them to have a just society, a just land, especially for the innocent. So much in this section is about preventing, for, preventing the deaths of the innocent or dealing with it when it happens. Now, by innocent, uh, I don't mean, nor does Deuteronomy mean sinless. It means free from guilt before one another and the law. It refers to someone who didn't deserve to die. They're innocent or guiltless before the law in that sense. So we refer to adults this way when they have not committed a crime that they're convicted of. They're innocent with respect to that. We refer to babies and children that way, and rightly. We're not saying they're sinless. Those of you who have them understand that. Um, but they're innocent in that they're, they're not deserving of abuse or death or some of the things that are given to them in this world. To kill someone who doesn't deserve to die is to kill the innocent. And that's expressed in this text with the phrase, the shedding of innocent blood. So we'll look at three sections here. First, Deuteronomy 19, in the first 10 verses, emphasizes the preventing of the shedding of innocent blood. The way that it's prevented is by setting up three cities in the land called cities of refuge. You can read with me. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. So the time frame here is when they're entering the land, they are there, they're at the edge of the land right now, they're going to go in and now they need to do something when God gives them the land. Verse two, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession. So this is the law. There's just choose three cities spread out across their land that will be set apart for a specific purpose. Here's the purpose. So that, it says, any manslayer may flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there can save his life. This is why they're called cities of refuge. It's a place of refuge for someone to run to and get away from the threat of death. They're on the run. Next is an illustration of this, verse 4. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, that's the key word there, without having hated him in the past. In other words, they're innocent of a crime worthy of death. This is accidental. Verse 5, as when someone, here's an example, goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Then verse 6 tells us why he needs to run to this city to save his life. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die. He was innocent, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. So, here's the situation. This guy on the run is innocent. He's killed someone, didn't mean to do it. Complete accident. It could have been his best friend. They're out there maybe having a great time, cutting wood, and then one of them goes to swing an axe, and the axe breaks. The head of the axe flings off and it hits the friend and the friend dies. So you and your friend are driving in a car to go have dinner 
best friend, love one another, normal day, the brakes go out. Defect with the car. You slam into a car in front of you. You look over and your friend's dead. That's the situation here. What happens next? Well, this text says that someone will be in hot anger. An avenger of blood, likely a family member of this person who's died. And he's angry with you. He wants to kill you. And he's coming after you. You're innocent. It was an accident. You don't deserve death. What do you do? You run to a city of refuge. That's what it's there for. Moses describes the situation and God says, verse 7, therefore, in light of this kind of situation, therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. So now verses 8 and 9 take this further. What happens when Israel's land gets bigger and people start spreading out further and further away and they're really far away from these cities of refuge? Well, obvious answer. If they can't make it there quickly, Moses says, build three more. So there'll be six cities of refuge spread out in the land so that people have access to these. Verse 10 gives the clear statement for why these cities are here. Here's their purpose. Lest innocent blood be shed. I find that a haunting phrase. Lest innocent blood be shed in your land and the Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So two purposes there, one leads to the other. First, lest innocent blood be shed. And second, so that the guilt of bloodshed is not upon you. So without these cities, there would be then two problems. First, innocent blood would be shed. They do not make these cities of refuge. The man in hot anger is going to overtake this innocent person and kill him. So innocent blood will be shed. And second... Israel will have the guilt of bloodshed on them. They would be a land of injustice if they do not set up these cities of refuge. If they refuse to do this, they will be culpable in being a land that is guilty of letting innocent blood be shed and not doing what the Lord said to do to prevent it from happening. But with these cities of refuge, if they obey God in this, then innocent blood will not be shed. Innocent will be protected. Israel will not have the guilt of bloodshed in these kinds of circumstances, and there'll be a land of justice and clear consciences. So this section is about the preventing of the shedding of innocent blood. The next section, verses 11 to 13, is about the punishing of the shedding of innocent blood. So the city of refuge is there to protect the innocent when they run there, but what if the person who runs there is not innocent? What if he intentionally murdered somebody? What if, in other words, the person actually shed innocent blood? And then that person runs to the city. Well, verse 11, if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. So if someone is guilty of shedding innocent blood and they run to a city of refuge, it will not be a place of refuge for them. They can't stay. They're guilty and the consequence is death. This, this section is really an expansion on the sixth commandment, don't murder. And so here someone has killed and the application of that commandment is, verse 
or is life for life. And then we see in verse 13, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. So once again, this is about the prevention of the guilt of shedding innocent blood among the people. Now flip ahead to chapter 21. Here's a third section about the cities of refuge. This time someone has been killed and nobody knows who did it. Verse 1 says someone's found laying out in the open country and so the Lord says you can't just let this go without notice. You can't do nothing about this. So there's a process that needs to happen, a very inconvenient process. The leaders, the cities gather together, they meet together, they find out which city is the closest to what happened here and then the leaders of that city need to go up through a process together. They have to get an animal to sacrifice. Verse 4, the elders of that city shall bring the heifer, this cow, down to the valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And then they're to wash their hands over this heifer and confess that they're innocent. And they're to say in verse 8, a prayer. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you've redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So in doing this, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. So this is a symbolic action. Now some of the details of this action are a mystery to me at least and many others. But there's one thing that's clear. The shedding of innocent blood interrupts the people's relationship with God. Even if they don't know who did it, they have to deal with this. There is guilt and it has to be removed. Now there are, from these three sections, there are four parallels between the shedding of innocent blood here and abortion. First, in a fallen world, it will happen. Innocent blood will be shed. God gives these laws to Israel, assuming that this kind of situation may very well happen. He anticipates it, and he gives laws in light of this tragic prospect. And he didn't miscalculate. It did happen. It was a pervasive problem in Israel's history. Throughout their history, the prophets stood up to them again about this. God spoke to them to remind them about the problem here. The prophet Jeremiah spoke about it most often. God repeatedly said through him that one of their central problems, when he's listing their main issues, one of the things God repeatedly mentions through the prophet Jeremiah is that they shed innocent blood. Related to that is they don't care for the orphan or the widow. It's often connected. Shedding innocent blood and not caring for the weak and vulnerable. Psalm 106, God gives a list of Israel's main problems over the centuries. Here's what he includes. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood. They poured out the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So this is talking about children. They sacrificed them to false God. Their children were innocent. They didn't deserve death. 
They deserved protection, and their own parents had them die. This wasn't just a problem in Israel. This was a problem in the cultures around them. Israel learned this from other peoples. So this is a pervasive problem around the globe, in their whole area over there. That's where they learned it from. They were acting like the other nations. Cultures that devalue infants to the point of putting them to death. It's been a continual problem in the world. There's nothing new. We have letters from the leaders of the early church. So this is, you know, 1,600, 1,700 years ago that were instructing Christians to not commit infanticide or abortion like the culture around them because it was commonplace in the Roman world. So there's nothing new today and God has been speaking to this very issue for thousands of years. Or Christians have. God's speaking to the guilt of shedding innocent blood and then it gets more specific over time as cultures find new ways to do this and then Christians speak. So in each one of these places there's innocent blood being taken and it continues today. There are approximately one million abortions a year in America, 45 million globally, and in each one of these, an innocent life is unjustly taken, which leads us to the second parallel. It is a justice issue. The cities of refuge were set up for the sake of justice. Deuteronomy 19.10 said that they needed to be set up lest innocent blood be shed. It was to ensure that those who did not deserve to die did not die. It assumes that there will be people who, for various reasons, will want to take a life unjustly. And these laws were given to Israel to protect those people. It's about social justice. It's about protecting the innocent. The issue of innocent blood is repeated throughout the Old Testament 17 or 18 times and it's repeatedly connected to the issue of justice. Jeremiah 22 verses 3 to 4 says, do justice and righteousness. Okay, so what does that look like? Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Many have said that the shedding of innocent blood is the greatest social justice issue in our day. Every year, 45 million innocents have their lives unjustly taken. They do not deserve it. They're not being protected. And the laws of many nations, including our own, are unjust with regard to this. God gave Israel these refuge cities so that the innocent could be treated as they deserve. In our culture, there are no cities of refuge for the little ones to run to. They cannot go to a city to get away. They cannot do anything. And our laws don't protect them. A father's commitment and a mother's womb, those two things are to be the city of refuge for the little ones. Third, because this does happen and because it's an injustice, it results in guilt. Deuteronomy 19.10 says, lest innocent blood be shed in your land 
And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So killing the innocent is not just a humanitarian issue. It's an issue that has to do with God, ultimately. There is guilt before him that has to be dealt with. Proverbs 6.17 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, and one of them that makes the list, hands that shed innocent blood. God is having the people of Israel go to great lengths, inconveniencing their lives to prevent this, to deal with it when it happens, and to deal with it when they don't even know who's responsible for it. Because whenever it happens, guilt before God comes with it. The guilt of abortion today is one of the most pervasive experiences on the planet among human beings. It's a real objective guilt before God, and it's a felt subjective experience in the heart. John Ensor, a man closely involved with helping women for years now, women and men and families care for their unborn children, connect them to resources to help them raise their children or place them for adoption. He said this, no other generation is more stained with blood guilt than the current generation. And here's why he said that. Because if it's true that there's something like 45 million abortions each year, globally, that means that each year perhaps something like 90 million people, fathers and mothers, are being hit with the guilt that comes from doing this. And each year, 90 million more, some of those repeated. The potential percentage, if you do the math, of the global population that has this shared experience of guilt, objectively before God, subjectively in their consciences, is astonishing. The percentage of people in our culture, perhaps in this room, it's an astonishing number. For many and for some of you, this guilt has been washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And when God said that to the people of Israel, he was talking to a people who had injustice and oppression and did not care for the vulnerable. And he says that to them. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So for others, though, this guilt is an oppression. For some, it's suppressed. They don't feel the oppression. It's blocked out. I watched an interview a few days ago of a man Christian brother, he's a rap artist, and he was telling the story how, of how a few years ago he had convinced his girlfriend to have an abortion, or for both of them to do that. He knew it was wrong, but he pushed through to do it anyways, and when they had the abortion, and that's the language he used, he said, when we had the abortion, and that's right, it was both of them. It's not just the woman. When, when we had the abortion, he said, um, he pushed it out of his mind. He pushed her out of his life, and he forgot about the whole thing. He just ignored it. And even in the, in the midst of making the decision, he knew it was wrong. He was a believer at this point. The Lord was convicting him. He suppressed it. He pushed it out. He made the decision. He blocked the whole thing off for years. And then years later, he was 
going to be married to another woman, his now wife. And in part of the process of being married, he decided to throw away all the old pictures of old relationships. He doesn't need those anymore. He's focused to one woman. So he was throwing them away and then he came to that woman's picture and he couldn't toss it. In the moment, I, don't, I think he expressed he didn't even know why, and his wife said, what's, what's the problem? Just toss it in the trash. And he broke down because the years of blocking it out surged through the surface all of a sudden. And he was confronted with his guilt. If you are personally affected, perhaps you think you're alone in this. He thought he was alone in this. You're not alone in feeling the way you do. And this man confessed that, and he's healed by Jesus Christ. And so there is a guilt that comes from participation in various forms here. There's also a guilt that comes from apathy. Not just a guilt from participating in wrongdoing, but from not participating in active rightdoing. There's a guilt that comes from not doing anything to stop this. Notice again the last part of 19.9. Then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So if the people do not obey the command to set up the cities of refuge and the innocent die, the guilt of bloodshed is on them. There's a shared responsibility to protect the innocent. And if the innocent are not protected, then those who could have and should have done something but didn't will bear guilt. Cain killed his brother Abel. And God asked Cain where Abel was, and Cain responded, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. So here's a final parallel. It's guilt has only one solution. Not just the best solution, one among many, several. There is only one ultimate solution. The only answer to the guilt of shedding innocent blood is the shedding of innocent blood. Hebrews 10.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood except for the shedding of innocent blood. And God has done it. He's given that to us. One of the dominoes that was tipped that led to Jesus' death was Judas' betrayal. He handed Jesus over to the leaders for him to be killed, and later he regretted it, and he said in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the narratives that follow of Jesus' trial and crucifixion emphasize two things, that Jesus was innocent and that his blood was shed. In Matthew 27, verses 22 to 23, the crowd shouts out, crucify him. And Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? He's innocent. And they shouted all the more, crucify him. And very interestingly, Pilate then does an action that has resonance with the action done in Deuteronomy by washing his hands in that moment, declaring himself innocent from this. He was wrong. And here's why this happened. Some of you may remember that story of Cain and Abel. They were Adam and Eve's sons. Cain killed Abel without cause. And God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It was crying out, the blood, crying out to God 
because it was unjustly taken. It's innocent blood. Innocent blood cries for justice, and God's ears are full of it today. Innocent blood is crying out from waste bins and dumpsters around the globe, very close to us, miles from where we speak now. And here's the relevance of Jesus' blood to those cries. Hebrews 12, 24. We have come to Jesus and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries for justice, and God answers that cry with the blood of Jesus. With his death, justice is met, mercy is given to all who will have it. Proverbs says that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. There is wrath being stored up for those who shed innocent blood, and that wrath will be poured out one day. God is angry at this injustice. And though it's suppressed, millions feel this to be true in their own hearts. The guilt of innocent blood may be, as John Enzer said, the defining experience of our generation and Deuteronomy says that a just response when blood, innocent blood is shed is that the guilty blood be shed. And a day is coming when the answer to the cries for justice will be met with judgment. But there is a better word that can be spoken today. The word of forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and a clear conscience and joy. So Proverbs says that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And yet Jesus submitted himself to those very hands those hands that shed his innocent blood. And as they were doing that, what word, what better word came out of his mouth? Father, forgive them. Isn't that amazing? That the God who hates hands that shed innocent blood loves hands that shed innocent blood so much that he would submit to those hands that he hates who shed innocent blood that Christ's blood might be shed so that those who shed innocent blood, that if they come to them, though their sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Forgiven, clear conscience, filled with joy, no more guilt, never brought up again, far as the east is was from the west, equally adopted as a son and daughter, equally a member of the kingdom, not on a bottom shelf, a princess and a prince of Christ's kingdom washed and cleansed. So in closing, let me just note two categories that we might think about what we might do. First, prevention. In Deuteronomy, cities of refuge were set up. They were set up to prevent the most common way that innocent blood would have been shed at that time. So throughout the centuries, God's people have acted in the spirit of this text in many ways. In some ways, modern-day cities of refuge are pregnancy help centers or friends and family that welcome men and women into their lives to care for them and their children or receive the children in their homes for adoption. So this is a call for creativity. Think of how you are particularly gifted, what resources you might have, what opportunities you might have or be able to create that you might be used for this purpose. Think about that phrase in this text, lest innocent blood be shed and think, this is what I'm doing. I'm thinking, what is one thing that I can put before that phrase? My own life. What's one thing that I will do, here's what I will do, blank, lest innocent blood be shed? How might I contribute to the prevention of innocent blood being shed? So I encourage you to pray, 
to fast. Talked about that a few weeks ago. This is something that only God can do. End this in our nation within a generation. Think, research, talk with one another. There's a group of folks from our own church family that the name Stand for Life that you can connect with to receive resources, to give resources, to talk about how you might help, find out how other people are being involved. They have an informational meeting next Sunday. Information is on your news sheet. I commend that group to you. It's also a similar high school group that students can get connected with. So first, prevention. Second, proclamation. If you know the gospel, if you have what we've been talking about this morning, the gospel, that Jesus shed his innocent blood for those who shed innocent blood, then you have the one thing that is needed for millions of people to hear. You have the one answer, the only answer to what is perhaps the defining experience of our generation The guilt of bloodshed. It's not talked about, it's under the surface, but to a trusted friend, people open up. People share. Something may cause the guilt that's already there to spring forth, and there's one way to make that guilt go away. If you're a Christian, you know that way. You are equipped to speak into the massive social justice issue of our day and bring hope. So I want to close by reading a story It's an example of what this looks like. This is John Ensor writing, mentioned before. When Nana brought her friend to see me at our local pregnancy help center, she sat silent for a while. Then she blurted out, it hurts so much, but what can I do? Nana had come for help a week earlier. She was pregnant, and here she found the help and courage she needed to prevent or place for adoption or needed to parent or to place for adoption. Now Nana brought her friend to see us. Please, she asked, talk to my friend. She had an abortion and all she does is cry. So I said, this is John speaking, some things truly are worth crying about. Nana said, I told her she could fast. I think that might help. Both of these women were nominal Muslims. I responded, fasting is a good thing, but in this case, I fear she could fast until she starved to death and never find any hope or assurance of forgiveness. No, I think she will need a miracle. Then I made things worse. I took out some pictures of abortion and showed her why she felt so terrible. To be clear, I honestly did not do this to hurt her further. I did it to show her that she was right to be crying. I did it to show her that her tears were a sign, that her conscience was working properly. She was not overreacting. Then I told her that I too was once convicted about my own guilt regarding the shedding of innocent blood, and this will speak to all of us. He said, I never did anything to stop it. I allowed it to happen and did not care enough even to try to stop it, so I too was guilty. She asked me what I did about it. I told her that I gave up all hope that there was anything I could do to remove the guilt. It was there that it, it was there and it was not going to go away by fasting or weeping. Trying to inflict some kind of punishment on myself could never pay it off. Trying to offset the guilt with good deeds would never erase the blood stain itself. No, I too needed a miracle. Then I took my cue from Hebrews 12, 24, which says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, or in her case, the better word than the cries of her preborn child. I applied the cross of Christ to this one thing and I explained it saying, there is no forgiveness for shedding innocent blood except by the shedding of innocent blood. Let me tell you how Christ shed his innocent blood for all those who will accept it as a free gift of grace. When I finished, she whispered, 
That is the most beautiful story I have ever heard. So you have what you need to be equipped to speak the most beautiful word that people will have ever heard and that they've not heard. And so I want to encourage you with that. You are equipped here. And I long for this church, our church, to be growing with a culture that values life and creatively, actively talks about how to prevent the shedding of innocent blood, that we're aware of the justice issue of our time, that we are compassionate when we speak about it, that we're creative in our efforts to prevent it, that we are convicted and own our own guilt in complacency or activity, and that we're confident and courageous having the one message that can bring peace to those who have the guilt of it. So as our closing prayer, we're going to sing a song together. So Larry's going to lead us in a song. It's called Kyrie Eleison, which means Lord have mercy. And then we'll be dismissed after that. And I encourage you, um, after this song that's a prayer, if you want to continue to pray, our elders and members of our prayer team, as every Sunday, meet in the prayer and gathering room out that door and to the right, and they'd be happy to pray with you for anything that's on your heart. I encourage you to do that if you sense the need. Would you stand as we sing? Have mercy, Christelle. Have mercy, Kyrie. Have mercy, Christelle. Have mercy as we come before you with the needs of our world. We confess our failures and our sin for our words are many yet our deeds have been few than the fire passion once again Kyrie eleison have mercy Christe eleison have mercy Kyrie eleison have mercy, Christelaison. Have mercy when the cries of victims go unheard in the land and the scar for war refuse to heal. Will we stand for justice to empower the weak till the bonds of oppression are no more? Have mercy, Kyrie eleison. Have mercy, Christe eleison. Have mercy, if we love our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Then this law of love will heal the nations of earth And the glory of Christ will be revealed And Kyrie 
stay liaison, have mercy. Kyrie liaison, have mercy. Christe liaison, have mercy. Lord, renew our vision to be Christ where we live, to reach out in mercy to the lost for each cup of kindness to the least of our midst is an offering of worship to the throne Kyrie eleison have mercy Christe eleison have mercy Kyrie eleison have mercy, Christe Leison. Have mercy. Go in the grace of God.